And that needs to be distinguished from what the Jews were talking about when they talked about resurrection, because that was emphatically not what they were talking about when they talked about resurrection, and not what Christians were talking about when they talked about resurrection. From them, the, the resurrection was life after life after death. And so we'll, we'll go and we'll try to give some concrete examples for what this looks like to make it clear and to actually, I mean, I've, I found this is helpful for me conceptually, actually looking and say, wait a second, do I, have I been believing what Christianity says or have, have, I, have my ideas been sort of mixed with other ideas which I might have, you know, pulled from Looney Tunes or, you know, some other, other areas um, so let's, let's go through this historically. So in the first century context, and I mean, Wright, Wright does a really good job of giving, I mean, kind of all the way, all the way back to Homer, uh, which is, you know, 8th century BC, and then all the way up to the first century. Um, and does, yeah, great job with Jews and, Jews and Christians in the same way. Um, from a pagan standpoint, which we're just going to say anything that's not Jewish, so kind of Greco-Roman, what, what do they believe about life after death? What do they think happens to, we can say, like, you know, the, the soul or whatever the human person is? after the body is gone. In general, the, the pagans tend to believe in some sort of continued existence. Uh, we're going to have to generalize here, but you can get into all kinds of examples of this. Um, the, the, the one word that comes to mind to go and be like the catch-all for what, you know, what this is, is Hades. Um, that's kind of where you know, souls are thought to go after uh, you know, you're, uh, the, you know, the, the, the clock strikes and uh, you're, you're, you're done and out of here. Uh, once once you, your body is dead, your soul goes to Hades. That's the most common view. You find that in Homer. You find that carried pretty much the whole way through in the Greco-Roman world. Hades is a bummer. Nobody really wants to go to Hades. Uh, and quite uniformly, I think you can say that Hades is viewed as an existence which uh, I, <laughs> um, pales in comparison to what actual life is like, what, what actual bodied existence is like. And so every, all the myths that you, that, you, that you hear told about what Hades is, um, everybody, everybody's not happy about being there. You don't find any happy people in Hades. Um, it is this kind of, you know, like, you know, ghostly existence or ghastly. I don't really know what the correct word is there. Uh, ghostly or ghastly existence. Um, and so as far as an image for this, um, I, and we've seen the, uh, the Disney movie Hercules. Right, we'll try hands for that, see what we're doing. So NT right, not so much Hercules lots. All right, just so we know what we're working with. Um, that's, that's actually, oh no, I apologize, Mr. Wright. Uh, I'm going to pick that up because the cover could get damaged. We'll do that. Uh, so that's actually a pretty, a pretty good image of what, uh, of, of what pagans believed happened after you died. Uh, there, was, there was something that was still there. There was some continued existence, but it wasn't a very fun existence. And if you remember uh, when, you know, neither Hades the character, um, so kind of representing, you know, uh, death, nor the people in Hades, the location, uh, are particularly happy. No, none of them really like what's going on there. Uh, and that's, that's basically what they, what they thought. And so in there being life after death in this kind of, um, you could say, very, very mitigated kind of way, um, is it possible to have contact, you know, with, with the dead? Well, yeah, sure. Like, you know, you have stories of, you know, ghost stories. You have stories of necromancy. You have, there's different ways in which, you know, 
uh, there, there's discussions of you know, the, the dead being present in some way, uh, so not being totally gone. Um, but it's always, a, it's always a bummer. Like, nobody's, nobody's really happy with that. So that's, that would be the common majority view that you find. You do find uh, dissenters from this. And so you find, on the one hand, you have kind of more skeptics towards all this in general and just say, ah, I don't really think any of that exists. I just think, you know, once you're gone, you're toast and that's all it is. And um, that would be a minority view within this period. Most people would still think that there is some kind of, you know, sad continued existence. But there were people that thought, no, this life that you see is all that it is. You would also have those who are following Plato. So Plato goes and says something that's fairly distinct, and in some ways is closer to what you know, becomes manifest as the Christian doctrine, although it is farther away in other respects as well. Um, and Plato says, no, the, the souls that, can, that, you know, that, that go after die are actually, if they're just and righteous souls, they're actually happier. They're, they're in a better place. They're in a, you know, some, this kind of paradise. And those souls, which were not good, the people who live bad lives, are in worse places. And, um, and so that's actually interesting. The way that he proves from his standpoint the immortality of the soul is the fact that he looks at goodness and badness and says these are real things. And so if justice is a real thing, then whatever, whatever we have not received recompense for in the body. So if I did a whole bunch of really bad stuff when I was alive, but I didn't actually get bad stuff back, well, that's going to, that's, because goodness and badness are a real thing, that's going to go, and you're going to have recompense for that in the afterlife. So my soul is going to go to a different place, and all those wrongs are going to be set right. So you can see there's, there's analogy there with what becomes the Christian view. Difference is, for Plato, the body itself is bad. So he thinks, ah, you know, the embodied existence is a bummer. Um, and it's really after you die that either the good stuff happens, or if, like, you're really naughty, then, like, the really bad stuff happens. Um, but again, that would be more or less a minority view. Uh, you're you're going to have, uh, yeah, in general, when people are dying in the ancient world, it's like, oh, great, like you're in heaven. It's like, oh, boy, this is, this is, not, this is not good. So we'll pour out some libations and we'll cry for a while and uh, we'll watch Hercules and wish that there was a way to bring you back, but there's not. So uh, we will we'll fill us in. Um, life after death, pagans, we'll say, does this work? Probably. And we'll put a sad face. So pagans, probably life after death. Um, what about life after life after death? Do, do the pagans in general believe that there's something that happens after that? The answer, uniformly, quite, in a quite striking way, the answer is no. They don't believe that there's life after life after death. They don't believe that people come back from the dead into some sort of new embodied existence. And it's, it's actually very striking how absent this is. What's, what's kind of funny is, the, um, if you're looking in the ancient world, the, the only real analogy that you can find for what becomes the Christian view is actually in Hercules. <laughs> and, uh, which is probably, there's probably no accident that uh, Hercules was the myth that Disney thought they could market to Christian America. Uh, because there are certain like, resonances that are there where you, know, the, you have the myth of Hercules where Hercules goes down, and they change the names, but... I guess in the thing, it's Meg. Is, it, is the girl's name Meg? Yeah, goes down and picks up, picks up Meg from the underworld and goes and brings her back, and it's really fun. Um, <laughs> I, I thought it was fun. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the only thing that you find. That's like the only myth that's there. And that's not, nobody actually thinks like, oh, wow, like this is a great deal. Maybe Hercules can save me too. Like everybody, it's recognized, it's one myth, 
and nobody makes anything else of it. Uh, and so it's really striking how absence that, absent it is. Nobody is hoping for a kind of re-embodied existence. Nobody is praying, Lord Hercules, will you please pull me out of Hades and let me come back into life again? Amen. Like, it doesn't, like you just don't find it. And so we will say, life after life after death, a re-embodied existence, we will say, not a chance. Not a chance. It doesn't happen. The Jews are different. So the Jews, when it comes to life after death, we have to acknowledge there's a pretty strong divide within Judaism um, in Jesus' day. So if, uh, I mean, the, and fortunately this part's more familiar to us because we're used to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We're used to them fighting back and forth. Anybody tell me what the Sadducees believed? No resurrection. And if they don't believe in a resurrection, do you think they believe in life after death? They don't believe in that either. They just don't really believe in anything. They kind of think, this is, you know, this is kind of it. What you, you know, uh, this, this, is, this, this is all you got. So the Sadducees would say, no, there's nothing else. And they would base that off of, if you're just looking at the Torah, which is all they do, they just look at the first five books of the Old Testament. From their standpoint, they say, we don't really think you could base a resurrection off of this. And so we're not going to do it. And we think that anybody that does it is stupid. And so we're not, we're not doing it at all. So that's the Sadducees. But they themselves would have a minority position in the Judaism of Jesus' day. Because the other side from the, from the Sadducees is the Pharisees. And if we look in Acts, the Pharisees do believe in resurrection. And Paul goes and uses this to his advantage uh, when he's, you know, kind of uh, being interrogated. And he goes, oh yeah, we're just fighting about the resurrection, right? That's what, you know, that's why I'm being persecuted. And like half the room is Sadducees, and they start going, rabble, 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 and the Pharisees and say, rabble, 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 and they start, like, throwing fruit at each other. And then, like, Paul kind of goes out the side door and says, see you guys later. Um, so you have, it's really interesting, uh, from the Jewish standpoint, the Sadducees uh, would say, no, it's not going to happen. So we're going to say, uh, no, and then we'll say, yes, confusingly. Some of them are saying, nope, but Actually, the majority of them would say, yeah, there is some sort of life after death. Now, the Pharisees aren't super clear as far as what that is. And if you're looking from a biblical standpoint, if you want to say, what is the intermediate state? Uh, that's not really clear. You've got some biblical examples. You've got when Saul goes to the witch of Endor to go get Samuel. Um, and Samuel says, what did I tell you about the witch of Endor? I said, don't do that. And then he goes, and uh, there's judgment that's upon him. And so it, evidently there is some sort of something or other that's there. Um, there's, you know, the talk of a Sheol, uh, which is, it ends up being translated into Greek as Hades. Uh, but it's not, really, it's not really very clear as far as what this intermediate state is going to be, whether it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. There's not, not tons of clarity. When it comes to life after life after death, you have the same thing. So Sadducees would say no. The Pharisees would say yes. And when they're saying yes, they would say at the end. From the standpoint of the Pharisees, at the end of time, when God goes and pulls the plug on history and says, okay, the story is over, we're going to close this book, that's when there is going to be the great judgment scene and God is going to go and bring judgment to the world. Uh, in some ways, it's similar to what, what Plato said, what we talked about, except from their standpoint, this isn't some sort of disembodied souls which are experiencing judgment. It's, no, this is actual bring you back from the graves, reconstitute you, and you are either going to be rewarded or suffer punishment for, for what, you, what you did. Um, and so they, 
in the kind of ancient context are unique in what they hold to. And the Jews were unique among all peoples in holding to this idea of resurrection and actual embodied life after life, after death. Now, the Pharisees weren't really clear on what this was and what this would look like as far as do we get, like, the individual hairs, hairs back? How do we, are the bodies that, that we have, are they like the bodies that we had previously? Are they, are they dissimilar? And there's not a whole lot of clarity to that. Um, and they don't really go too far in speculation, although you do find in their burial practices, they, they're very, very, very careful as far as what they do with bones and stuff like that because they're thinking, look, I, we think God's going to use this stuff to make us again out of it. And so if he's going to make us again out of it, like, we've got to make sure, like, we put it all in, this, you know, in the right boxes. And so, like, you, so, so it's, really, it's really interesting. You do, you get, you, get, you get second burials. And so you have somebody goes and is buried, and then after a time, you have these secondary burials where they go, and they will, like, take all the bones that were there and assemble them in proper order in the box so that when the Lord is going to go and reconstitute us, it'll be very easy for him. He's not be like, where, like... I'm missing a forearm, guys. Has anybody seen a forearm? It's like, it's, right, it's all right there for you. It's really convenient, and it's a kind thing to do for the Lord. Um, so, so from their standpoint, yes, there is going to be something. What's it going to look like? We don't know exactly, but there is going to be life after life after death, an actual embodied life. And that's very unique. You just don't find something like that in the, in the ancient world. The Jews are unique in holding to this belief. Okay, so we've got pagans, we've got Jews. Christians come out of the Jewish context. Um, it's hard to overstate this or to emphasize it enough. The, the first Christians are all Jews. And while you do have interaction with the pagan culture around them, um, you know, Paul, for instance, isn't afraid to go into to, uh, to quote pagan poets when it goes and serves a good purpose, when there's something that's true that's there. The, found, uh, the, the foundation of his thought and of the rest of the, the apostles' thought, and of Jesus' own thought, his humanity, is the they're all Jews. It's, it's all Jewish stuff. So when it comes to life after life after death, writes very good, or life after death and life after life after death. I should stop trying to say those after one another. Uh, writes very good at taking everything that we have from Scripture and then from the church within the first uh, two centuries and putting it all together and saying, what was it that Christians held? And then having established that what they held, they go and ask the questions, why in the heck did they hold to what they held to? Why did they believe it? And what you find is that they believe something which is really quite new and distinct and very striking. And so life after death, do you believe in this? They do, yes. Um, there's not as much emphasis placed on life after death. Uh, and there's not always a great degree degree of clarity as far as what this looks like. And so from Paul's standpoint, when he talks about, um, you know, it being better to go with the Lord and you know, to, to, to be with Jesus, there's some sense in which if he does die, um, then the thing that happens to him is he will be with Jesus in some, in some sort of way. Um, you get uh, ideas, and so, and so I guess a traditional understanding of, of heaven, uh, of, of a pre-resurrection, pre-reconstitution heaven, uh, would, would be what would correspond with that. Um, there's ideas that are there that you find talked about, um, like going to the, you know, to the bosom of Abraham, which is kind of using the, uh, the image that Jesus gives in the parable of Lazarus, uh, where, the, uh, where Lazarus is with Abraham. Um, and you can say, it, it doesn't really clear as far as, is this, is this now an embodied existence, what it is? 
Um, but it's something that early Christians talk about as far as when you die, there's a sense in which those who, those who are righteous, those who are God's people, go to be with him in some, in some fashion. And it's a good thing where they are, they are present with him. And those who die and are not righteous, that are not God's people, those who, who have rebelled against him, they're probably in a place that is more like Hades, that's more, more, of, a, more of a bummer. Um, but again, what's interesting is that you do have that, but you don't have tons and tons of clarity with it. You don't have tons and tons set, set about it. What you do have a lot said about is life after life after death. And here is where Christianity goes and puts the emphasis. Um, when it comes to what life after life after death is, the best way you can say it is, you guys aren't going to believe this. That'd be the best way to summarize their position. You guys are not going to believe this. Um, because what they do say is quite remarkable and is quite unbelievable, and it's something that they recognize from the very beginning. What they're saying is pretty out there and is pretty extraordinary. Now, in some ways, if, if you already hold to a Jewish view, it's maybe not the most extraordinary in the sense that there are lots of commonalities here. And you can go and say the baseline of what the Christian view of resurrection is, of life after life after death, it is the Pharisaic view. It is the, the common one that Jews held to, that there is indeed a resurrection. Um, so you can say, yeah, this is like the Jews, um, but it's modified in a couple of really interesting ways. Um, one is that the early Christians are very specific Whereas, you know, kind of heaven, things like that, they're not as specific. They have images and things like that. They don't, you know, they don't get into the detail that much. When it comes to what resurrection life means, the thing that follows life after death, they're very specific with that. And so they say, yes, we will have a body, but it's not going to be a body in the way that our old bodies were in that. They're not going to be corruptible. They're going to be completely incorrupt. They're not going to be mortal like our old bodies were. They're going to be immortal. But yet they're still going to be physical. Um, the, right, the, the, word that, um, that right, the word that right actually makes up in the, in the course of this book to try to describe the way that early Christians described this is transphysical or transphysicality in that you have a, a physicality that's there. So it is actual, there's actual bodies that we have, but they're transformed. They're not the same way that they were before. In early Christian, the... the the, the theology that they have with this is quite developed and quite specific, and it comes, evidently, out of nowhere because you don't have any sort of correspondence for this elsewhere in the ancient world. There's, just, there's, there's nothing that's there. The second part, and this is the thing that's most extraordinary, is that they say, so that whole thing with the resurrection, we agree with the Jews that this is going to happen at the end of time. We agree this is something that's, you know, that's at the end of the story. Uh, there's just one thing it turns out that it's happened once now. It turns out that this thing that we thought was re reserved for the end of history, the end of the book, the end of time, it turns out that the author has gone and written himself into the story right in the middle and has given himself one of these bodies. And we've seen it because he himself has become human and has died and has been resurrected as the first fruits. He's, he's the one that's done it. And so this thing that's supposed to only happen at the end has now happened right in the middle of history. And from a, a timeline standpoint, uh, you, if you're reading the Bible, sometimes you can't tell 
if, you're, if they think it's the end of the world or if it's the beginning of the world. And I think that that's, uh, that makes a whole lot of sense if you have this view that this thing that's supposed to happen at the end of time has now happened right in front of us and we've seen and touched it. I think that, 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 gives, that gives you some, some, some perspective for how the eschatology of the New Testament is sometimes like, is it, is it now? Is it not yet? How do we, how do we make, sen- make sense of this? So that's what the Christians hold to. They hold to the, the Jewish view that there is life after death, um, but more importantly, that there's life after life after death. And what has happened to Jesus, the Messiah, is going to happen to us, to those who follow him, to those who follow the creator, the one who made everybody, those who actually turn their hearts to him and receive him, that he will go and, uh, you know, I guess as John says, give the authority to become the sons of God, to become what he, what he is and what he's been manifested as. Um, Let's pause there. Are there are there any any questions on that before we before we go to next next bits? All right. If anybody falls asleep, I will throw things at you. So, <laughs> but only out of love for you, not out of hatred. Just so you know. Um, for the Christians, what's interesting? Uh, this is another thing that Wright goes and tries to explain. You see, for 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 both pagans and Jews, life after death, life after life after death. Those are, those are important things, but they're not the center of what they're thinking about all the time. It's not the center of what they're talking about all the time. For Christians, it is. This is the central deal. This resurrection thing, this is the central thing that's going on for Christians. It's the main thing that they're talking about. Um, and you can find this all over the pages of the New Testament. Uh, you can find it all over the life of the early church. My favorite example for this is in Acts 17. So Acts 17 Paul it goes to Athens, and he's at the Areopagus, and he's, he's talking over there. And uh, everybody that's at Athens goes and hears him and says, what is this guy talking about? He sounds like he's proclaiming foreign gods named Jesus in a resurrection. The, their understanding of what Christianity was, was it was, again, this is just based off of what they're hearing from, you know, from Paul talking to other Christians. They think that there's two gods there. One of them is named Jesus, and one of them is named Resurrection, and there's something going on with them, but we can't really figure it out. That's, that's how central it is that the idea of resurrection is to what the Jesus movement, you know, becomes and what it's, what it's known as in the ancient world. And so you have this thing that's moved straight to the center. And so Wright goes and looks at these things and says, why, why in the world does it go and begin like this? Why does it... Why does it why does it show up with these views of the resurrection? And why does it take the particular and very peculiar for its time shape that it does? We're going to go and look at some of the evidence. That's, uh, that, that's here. We're not going to go through all the biblical evidence. We're just going to do a really quick kind of survey of stuff that's there. And we're going to engage with some of the theories and ideas that are sometimes given in more, I don't know, uh, like skeptical context and things like that. Um, and look at the ways that Wright goes and engages with these because he's, he's just he's really good at kind of uh, putting information together, which even though it often seems basic, um, unless you actually look at it, you might not uh, kind of have it on the top of your head. So we'll start with Paul uh, because he, within the New Testament, is usually thought to be the earliest witness that we have chronologically. So if you're looking at the letters... Um, that, you know, or the various parts of the New Testament, it's, it's thought that his letters are probably the things that are written earliest, at least in their, in their final form. It's possible with the Gospels, their stuff is maybe written that's transmitted later, then finished a little bit later than this. But usually thought, okay, Paul's the first earliest witness we have to whatever it was that happened in the 30s. So Paul's writing in the 40s and 50s. And what's interesting, if you're looking at this, 
when, when, when Paul's talking about the resurrection, he, I, I think, try to do this at one point. Try to go and look around to see where Paul goes and says, hey guys, I've got something to teach about the resurrection. I'm going to go and, have you heard of this thing called the resurrection? I'm going to go and let you know this resurrection thing. Everywhere in all of his letters, resurrection isn't something that he goes and is saying, hey, I have to go and teach you this thing. It's already presupposed. He goes and he mentions resurrection all the time and assumes everybody's going to know what he's, what he's talking about. And he goes and he will clarify, he will remind, and we're going to get to a, you know, a very famous passage where he is saying, hey, I'm going to remind you what this is. But already in the 40s and 50s, he's reminding of something that all these people in all these churches for some reason hold to, which is a really interesting question. Why in the world do these weird people hold to these weird ideas about people being reconstituted and given these immortal bodies? Um, from a historical standpoint, it's a fascinating question. Um, so what we're going to do to give a, uh, yeah, to, to go into kind of take the material that's, that's here of Christians in relation to these other views, we're actually going to read 1 Corinthians 15 and just get, I mean, it's a, it's a big, big, long thing, but there's tons of good stuff there. And it'll give you a, a, maybe some, some sense of um, what this looks like specifically within Scripture. And so as you're listening to 1 Corinthians 15, um, think about, these different views in your head and how it is that the Christian view is unique in relation to these. And also just the place of resurrection in general within what Paul is doing and saying. Um, I think we have it uh, up there. So what I'll do is I will read it. Do we have the technology back there to make it follow along with the reading stuff? Awesome. Good man. Um, so 1 Corinthians 15 um, just context for this, this is usually thought to be written sometime in the early 50s, so I don't know, 51, 52, somewhere like that, so not, probably not the first thing that Paul wrote, definitely not the last thing that Paul wrote, um, somewhere kind of early, early career. So, First uh, Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of, them, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been, has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who are also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. That's a hard sentence to read. <laughs> Otherwise, why, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the, of the dead? It's a great question, Paul. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? If anybody knows what that means, I will give you a sticker afterwards and maybe a chocolate bar. Um, we'll, we can have that for the Q&A. Uh, 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up for your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But if someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Again, here, he assumes they should know the answer to these questions, which is wild. <laughs> what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, for the, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for the star for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first, man, Ad, the first man, Adam, became a living being, with the last Adam a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's so, so much that we could get into, and I'm just going to uh, kind of skate over the surface of that and grab a couple little bits. So in the beginning, um, that first bit that's there, where he says, I pass on to you what I received, that's commonly recognized as being an early creedal formula, where he goes and says that you know, Christ did this, and this, and this happened, and this happened, then he appeared to this person, and he appeared to this person. That's recognized as being something that Paul himself has received as an early Christian creed, which Already, we're talking early Christian creed. Like, this is in the early 50s. So going back to, I mean, established either in the, in the 30s or the, or the 40s. Um, so that part, whatever that is, whatever what is going on there, it, it goes back to a, a point when uh, if whatever the truth is of, uh, of the resurrection, if it was falsified, it would have been falsified at a very early date. The other question is, who in the heck would falsify something like this? Because what Paul is saying is very specific. Um, and you just don't find correspondence for it. If you're looking in Jewish context, Greek context, any, any kind of context, you just don't find anything like this anywhere. So the question is, where the heck does this come from? Why is it that this thing is taking the shape that it is? We've looked at one example of you know, one chapter of one letter, but you find this theology attested all over Paul's writings, um, which, which there's lots. And in all of these, he's, he's not going and saying, hey, I'm, I'm, here's, here's a new idea you have. He's, applying, he's, he's, uh, he's appealing to the churches that he's talking to as a common ground and saying, you hold to this, but we need to understand this over here and let me explain this to you a bit better. So what's the historical explanation? Where does this come from? One, one way of saying this, um, if you're taking, so blue is if I am the skeptic and I'm going to raise a skeptical uh, uh, objection of some sort. Uh, one way of looking at this is, well, Paul just thought that Jesus was the Messiah or God or something. And so since Paul thought that Jesus was the Messiah or God or something like that, then he must have thought he was resurrected. And so he's just going, he held to this, held to this view. He thought he was the Messiah. He thought he was some sort of divinity. And of, of course, then he goes and makes up this resurrection thing. Um, there's a couple issues with that. Um, one which we won't spend as much time with is just that Paul himself isn't, like these aren't, like, these aren't Paul's diaries that we're reading. These aren't like kind of sort of, uh, you know, poems that Paul writes to himself. These are letters that he's writing to communities which already hold to all these various things that he's talking about. And so we're not really dealing with Paul in and of himself. We're dealing with a historical reality which goes and goes way beyond Paul and his own sort of ideas and purview. The second idea is this. Um, and some of this actually, in, in looking at this material, I, had to, I, I confess that my... Um, from a, like a theological standpoint, 
I had taken for granted things which you can't really take for granted. Think about this. Where in Scripture does it go and say the Messiah is going to show up, he's going to be killed, and then he's going to go and be resurrected? There's going to be a resurrection of the Messiah. Where is the, where is the clear place that you would point to in the Hebrew Scriptures that would say that? And the answer is, there's not a really clear one. That's not a, something that everybody was naturally thinking was going to happen. Or how about with God himself, that God is going to go and become incarnate, or the Son of God, whatever language you want, want to use. Where would you find that, that God's going to, you know, Yahweh is finally going to show up, and we're going to go and crucify him, and then we're going to put him in the ground for three days, and he's going to rise again? We don't really find that either. Um, it's not to say that there's, there's no correspondence, that you can't piece the thing together, but when you think about it, think about the expectation of the disciples that were there. Um, when Jesus said things like, you know, in three days, the Son of Man is going to, or the son, we're going to go to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be killed, and then three days later, he's going to rise again. Um, what do the disciples do at that point? Do they go and say, oh, I, yeah, of course, just like it's written in Ezekiel or Zephaniah or wherever it happens to be. They don't say anything like that. Nobody has any clue that he's talking about. Nobody has any idea where in the world this is coming from. You can say, in hindsight, there are passages which the disciples go and look at, and, you know, with the Emmaus Road, when Christ goes and opens their mind to the scriptures, then at that point, they go and they get an understanding and a knowledge of, wait a second, we have not been reading the scriptures correctly. We've been missing stuff that was here. Um, and there are, you know, significant things where it's like, you know, uh, granted the fact of a resurrection, you can go back and look at scripture and say, oh, this is really interesting. But nobody was expecting God to go and become incarnate and die and resurrect. And so for Paul to go and say, oh, well, uh, Jesus went and resurrected, and ergo, he must be God. Nobody, that doesn't, lo- doesn't follow logically at all. There's no, there's no Bible verse that goes and says that. And so it, it, it wouldn't prove his case. It wouldn't say a whole lot. If he, if he resurrected, everybody would say, that is very odd. It's an odd thing to happen. Um, but they wouldn't go and say, ergo, he, he must be the son of God. It's only, if, and this is the fun thing, this, this argument only really works backwards. Paul goes and encounters the resurrected Jesus. And encountering the resurrected Jesus, he then has to go and rethink his theology. So he starts with the resurrection, and then from the resurrection, goes and looks around and says, wait a second, this must mean he is the Messiah. But this Messiah, in this way, can only be God himself. So it's a fun, it's a fun idea. It's just backwards. It's just completely backwards. Um, so that's a, that's a brief look at Paul. Let's look at the Gospels real quick. Um, here you have four portraits of the resurrection. Now, from a skeptical standpoint, you can go and say, well, the Gospels are their later writings. They're not actually, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not actually sort of historical documents. Uh, these things, you know, each Gospel kind of goes in, or, you know, all the Gospels together. They reflect the church's own concerns, not, not history. They're just dealing with the communities that they engage with. And if, I don't know, if you get into academic kind of level biblical studies, you, you encounter stuff like this a lot. Um, it's important to acknowledge there's some truth to this. Now, when it comes to these being later writings. Most people would agree that these probably are written after, you know, after, after Paul, Paul wrote. If anybody goes and says, hey, I know exactly when the four Gospels are written, you can know immediately 
that they're trying to pull a fast one on you. Because just the reality of it is when you, when you look at these things, we don't really have a fantastic idea. You can, make, you can make good cases for early dates. You can make good cases for later dates. We don't exactly know as far as what, what the final form of texts are. If you're looking, you've got a longer ending of Mark. You've got a, you know, if you're looking in, uh, in John, you have something where it looks like John might have died, and then an editor goes and at the end and says, hey, this guy was going to die, so don't worry. Um, it's, really, it's really interesting. So we don't actually know, know what we're looking at, but probably, yeah, these are probably written afterwards. Do they reflect the church's own concerns? In some ways they do, yeah, I think so. I think that each gospel writer has their own distinctive emphases that they're, you know, that they're, that they're, that they're looking at, they're wanting to go and to convey in the way they tell the story of Jesus. However, does this go and explain everything with respect to resurrection? And there's a number of things here, which I will just touch on briefly because otherwise we'll be here all night. Um, there's a number of reasons that to, to say that this is the whole story doesn't really work. And there's actually, if you, if you look at it, you can make a really good case of what the Gospels are doing is actually pulling on traditions that are before Paul, not after Paul. And so let's go through these. Um, why, if this is the case, if these are just later writings, they're not actually historical, why is it these aren't harmonized? If you're going to fabricate something, if you're going to make something up, the first thing that you do is you make sure you have your story straight. If you stole the cookies from the cookie jar, and then the, the cookie jar broke, up, broke open, and your mom's going to be really angry, you and all your friends go and you say, okay, we're getting our story straight. And you figure out what your story is, and then you stick to it. The, the story is not straight. It's not a flattened out kind of a whitewashed story. And it's not to say that there's not ways of reconciling the things that are, dif that, are, that are different in the different accounts that are there, but it's not a flat whitewashed story. Just to give some examples, how many women go and show up at the tomb? That's a good question. They don't all give the exact same number. It doesn't, mean that they, it doesn't mean that one of them couldn't have just said, you know, Mary Magdalene was the important one, and that's the only one that's mentioned. There could be ways of reconciling it, but... It also doesn't seem as though everybody got together and gave the same story because they give different numbers. Or how about this? How many angels were there at the tomb? Again, different numbers. What does Jesus do when he's resurrected? Does he stay in Jerusalem? Does he go to Galilee? Well, some of the accounts say that he was, you know, in Jerusalem. Other ones say he was in, say he was in Galilee. This is not harmonized. The four accounts that are there are not all telling the same story. You can say that they are all attesting to a story, from different perspectives, and you can make a case for that, but you can't make a case that they're all this sort of one localized, hey, we made this thing up. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. There's not a, like a historical way to put it together. Second thing, this is more of a subtle argument, but it's really interesting. In the passage we talked about from 1 Corinthians 15, what we read, he talks about how Christ was, um, he's, you know, he's put together according to the scriptures, rose again according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures is a very important idea that's there. If that's the case, why is it if you're looking at the resurrection accounts, you find almost no scripture there? You find, it's, it's really funny, if you, if you look in the four, the four ways the story are told, you just find almost nothing. And there's very little that you can go and say is harmonized to other parts of scripture. So let's give an example of this. Daniel 12 is probably the most important text that you will find um, that the Pharisees, for instance, will, will draw upon as far as the resurrection. And it goes and it talks about, you know, those, those who are resurrected, how they will kind of shine like stars. And so most people are thinking, you know, the Pharisees are going to say, well, what's the resurrection going to be like? Oh, people are going to be shining, and it'll kind of be like that. Well, if, 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 the, if the evangelists are just making up stuff, um, and they're, they're just kind of, you know, creating a story based off of what the Old Testament expectation is going to be, 
the easy way to do it is like, well, Jesus is going to shine like a star because that's like the clearest resurrection text we have in the Old Testament. It, that, that's what it says. None of them say that. And there's not a great reason why. If they're just going to fabricate it, you would do something like that. But you just don't find anything like that. We'll keep going. Third, why is there no personal resurrection hope in these stories? If all you were looking at was the four Gospels, would you know that you yourself, you there in the front row, would you know that you yourself have any personal hope of resurrection? Think about that. It doesn't really talk about the believer's resurrection. It doesn't really talk about what happens to us. We get told what happens to Jesus, and then the story just sort of cuts off, and that's it. And it's only really when we get to Paul and other people who are later looking at this stuff that we get any sense of, because you are in Christ, ergo, what God has done to him, he will do to you. But the four Gospels don't say anything about that. They just, they give you nothing. And so if this is reflecting the church's own concerns, all you could really say is that the four churches of the four gospel writers were unconcerned about their own resurrection, which to me, I I just don't find to be particularly plausible. Fourth, if this is all made up, you know, the, 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 the gospel writers are just kind of making stuff up off the top of their heads, why do they make stuff up that's not really of any sort of precedent. So, for example, I mean, you have the Daniel 12, 12 example. They can go and say, that would be an easy one if they're going to make something up to make stuff look like that. But they don't do that. And the stuff that they do say isn't what anybody would expect. Who is it that would expect Christ to go and say, do you have any fish for me to eat? That's not something that anybody expects. How is it that he, you know, one who is asking for fish to eat, goes through walls? Just, there's there's a locked door and he shows up. That's not really, nobody expects anything like that. Why is it that if you're looking at the way his physicality is represented, that though he has a new body, yet you can still see the marks in his hand? Like, what is, what is going on with that? It doesn't really give, and there's no, there's no clear explanation that the authors themselves give. It has the marks of something that they encountered, and later theologians will go and say, this is the reason for this, or we think this reason for this. What it doesn't have the mark of is something where it has all the clear theology worked out in advance, and it's going to explain it for you. It just doesn't do it. And then fifth, this is probably my favorite one, why, if these are all kind of fabricated, you know, the, the four gospel portraits, why is it that you have women as the primary witnesses? Does anybody know anything about women in the ancient world and the way that they function as witnesses? Anybody? They're, they're worthless. Yeah, and it's not, it's not just that nobody believes them. So it's not just a, like a cultural prejudice. It is a cultural prejudice. You do have that. But from a legal standpoint... It's also true that both in Jewish culture and in broader Greco Roman culture, that the testimony of a woman is legally inadmissible. Let me say that one more time. The testimony of a woman is legally inadmissible. So if the gospel writers are making up these resurrection stories, why do they go and have it so that Jesus first appears as his first and primary witnesses, he first appears to women. 
who no one will believe anyway, and whose testimony nobody could go and appeal to to say, oh, well, this is, yes, we, we, we know this to be the truth. Why, why, would he, why would they do that? Why would they go and tell a story that itself would in, invalidate itself to the broader co- context? You want to see something funny? If you think back to the passage we just read, do you remember in the beginning there, when we were going through that little creedal bit, do you remember when Paul goes and says, and Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and appeared to the other women and then went and appeared to Peter after that? Does anyone remember that part? Because I don't, I myself don't remember that part. And if you look closely at the text, they're not in there. <laughs> the, the, the account that you have in 1 Corinthians 15, whatever that early creedal thing is, it doesn't go and say that he went and appeared to the women. It says he appeared to, Simon, to Cephas, to Simon Peter, and then appeared to the 12, and kind of goes and gives a list. It doesn't have the women as part of the list. And the, the most, I mean, I think the most obvious explanation for that is they recognize that having this as part of the creedal formula, people are going to read this and be like, well, that's really funny, and they're not going to read the rest of it. And so that's not put into the creedal thing that's there. But yet the four Gospels, all of them are preserving this thing, which the only explanation I can give for it is that they're preserving something that goes back before this creed in the 40s. I can't think of any other historical explanation for that. Because if you look, it's not just like a theoretical thing like, oh, the Christians could get dismissed for this. The Christians were dismissed for this. If you read the, um, the earliest writing that we have um, against, against Christianity, which we have reconstructed from fragments, uh, it's by this guy named Celsus. And this, he goes exactly to this point. He says, okay, so you guys have invented this crazy legend. And then in the process, you've, you've invented this crazy legend that nobody would believe. Because if this guy really was God, why wouldn't he get his story straight? Like, why, why wouldn't he appear to a man of some kind who would actually give testimony for this? And so it's not just like a theoretical thing like, oh, this could, you know, maybe be a complication. It was a complication. They had to, they had to deal with this. And yet the four resurrection portraits that we have from the Gospels, they don't edit this out. There's no sense of, oh gosh, this is, tr- this is trouble. Jesus' way of doing things is, I don't, I don't really know. They don't, they don't clean it up. They leave it there. And the only reason I can think for that historically, even though it goes against you know, the, what they're trying to do in the broader Greco-Roman world, the only reason I can say that they you know, would preserve it is because that's what Jesus did. I have no other historical explanation for it. So I think what we come across, what is summarized is the Gospels, I think when you look at all these things, and for me, I think point five is, is, is my favorite, um, you realize that what you have in the Gospels only makes sense as something that's preserving very early tradition, and really not just like very early, I think pre-Pauline tradition, something that goes before what you have in the 40s. This doesn't mean that the finished, you know, finished gospel of John is written back then. It just means that whatever was, you know, what, whatever the, the original memoirs of John were, whatever John was doing back in the 30s, he hasn't changed the story if it's, you know, when it's written in the 80s, whenever it happens to be. So let's, let's summarize some of this. We've looked at some, um, some of what resurrection is, what it's understood to be, and how we see this testified to in the scriptures and some of the, some of the, the objections that are given to it some of the ways that those objections can and should be engaged with from a historical standpoint. So let's go back to the original question and try to give an answer to it. Why did the Christian movement begin, and why did it take the shape that it did? Well, you can say, 
and, and Wright kind of engages with, with a couple of common ideas. You can say this is wish fulfillment, that the, the apostles are all themselves going and fulfilling their deepest desires and wishes, and this is just the way that they happen to do it. The difficulty with this, uh, even if you go and grant that something like this is, is possible to go and pull off, you can pull off a scam like this, the, the problem is none of the disciples were wishing for anything like this. Again, think back to what we find attested in the Gospels. Over and over, Jesus goes and says something. And what's the response? The disciples did not understand what he meant. The disciples were greatly afraid. No one dared to ask him anything. Just over and over again, the disciples have wishes, they have desires, and what Jesus is saying matches up with them in some ways, but also in very important ways, it doesn't match up with them. It doesn't, they, don't, they don't get it. If you think of Acts... In the beginning of Acts, they've seen all this. They've seen the resurrection. They've, they've been witness to all this. They've gone through with him as the risen Christ. He is about to ascend into heaven, and their wish is they want to know when the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. So even after all of this, they're still thinking. Their wish is, this is, this is going to be great. He's going to go and bring the Israelite kings back. It's going to be like back in the days of King David. And if we had wish fulfillment, that's what we would get, I think. If that's all that you were looking at, you would get, and Jesus was the great reigning king of David, and it was really wonderful, and he rebuilds a temple, and all kinds of cool things happen. Probably not the Bathsheba incident, but besides that, it's really great and wonderful. That's what they're thinking. They're still thinking that he is going to restore the nation of Israel. And he just kind of sidesteps the question. He's like, I don't really think that you guys have figured this out yet, but we've got time, so we'll work on this. And then he ascends. So I don't really think, as a historical explanation, it, it's hard for that to hold, hold a whole lot of water. Or, you can say second, maybe the disciples had wonderful spiritual experiences that we just can't account for. You know, they experience these wonderful things of forgiveness and then sort of somehow that turned into resurrection language, how that alchemy works, we don't really know. Somehow it did, though. I guess you could say that. I just, in doing so, what you would have to do is you would have to discount everything that early Christians say about the resurrection. You have to discount all that evidence. You have to discount all the evidence that early Christian opponents go and give about what the Christians believe, because early Christian opponents say, no, that they really believe in this physical resurrection thing. They're not talking about spiritual kind of, you know, warm fuzzies. They're actually talking about re-embodiment. You have to ignore all of that, and then you have to just substitute all that evidence for something for which we don't have any evidence because nobody talks about wonderful spiritual experiences. It just doesn't happen. So I think historically it's hard for that to, to hold water either. I think what you're left with in the end, and Wright's really good at doing this, you're left with two facts. And as historical facts, I mean, you, you, in history you can't go and recreate something. You can't go and kind of you know, put the thing in the beaker and then the test tube and then the bubbles come up like it does in chemistry class. Um, you, you can't do things in the same, same sort of way, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, but from a historical standpoint, I think that if you want to explain the data here, there's two pieces of data that you have to come back to. One is the empty tomb. That, for whatever reason, the tomb was empty. And that's something that actually, if you're looking in, I mean, even some of the most skeptical scholarship, they'll say, yeah, none of this makes any sense if the tomb isn't empty. But that itself isn't enough, because if all you had was an empty tomb, then you would just say, here you have another failed Messiah, like the other failed Messiahs that you have in this period. You have another Jew who said a lot of idealistic things and was crucified by the Romans, and then was dead, and then was 
still dead. And some, some of them got buried in nice places. Other ones didn't get buried in nice places. This one, somebody stole his body. And that's it. We don't know the stories of most of the other ones. The ones that we do, nobody really remembers. And this is another one you would add to the list. So I think just the empty tomb, I don't think does it. I think that you need to add as a historical fact encounters with the resurrected Jesus. And here we have what Paul is talking about. Here we have what the four gospel narratives are talking about. And here we have what the rest of the New Testament is attesting to, that there is these real encounters with the real resurrected Jesus. And at this point, I think this is where existentially this, this, this hits us, where we realize that we're not doing history anymore, that we're dealing with something else. And anyone who wants to look at the resurrection from a historical standpoint realizes that they're suddenly looking at something that is looking back at them in a way that isn't just, I'm the subject and you're the object. Suddenly, we are the objects. And suddenly, somebody else is looking at us, I think. If we look at this in the way, if we think that this is the historical explanation for it. The, it's, it's funny. The, uh, the image that comes to mind for what this does, uh, if this is the case, then it's, it's sort of like how uh, when Rafiki goes and says to Simba, uh, you know, Simba goes and says, you know, you, you, knew, you knew my father. Um, and Rafiki goes and says, correction, I know your father. It's really interesting because if he is alive, then that does change everything. And what that means existentially for myself, for Wright, for all the scholars that he's engaging with, those who believe, those who disbelieve, those who do not want to believe. If this is the case that we have a resurrected Jesus, then that does change everything. The same way that for Simba, the knowledge that, wait a second, my king, my father, is actually alive. That means that his, you know, his, uh, his, his Hakuna Matata days, uh, they're kind of over, and you can't really live that way. I just don't, I don't think you can. If that is the case, that there is, that he is alive, then for Simba, that means that he has to leave behind that old way of life. He has to leave behind that sort of, uh, you know, no worries for the rest of your days. It doesn't work like that. There's a mission that he has. There's a task that there is for him that he has to take up. And I think that if that's true for Simba with Rafiki, that it's much more true for us where we're not just talking about a spiritual lion in the sky, a king that, you know, was around and is dead, but then, you know, went up with the stars. We're talking about the real king. We're talking about the one who actually took on real flesh and blood, but flesh and blood in a way that is going to be incorruptible that does not, does not perish the way that ours does, the one who's the first fruits of what we are going to become ourselves. I'm going to read, just to close, because I think, I, think, I think that when we get to this, we, we realize that we've gotten beyond history into something else. Um, and so we're going to get to some of that next, next week as far as what this actually looks like and what this resurrection looks like, life looks like in the early church and how you see it manifest. But I want to, uh, to leave us with this this last bit that Paul has, because I think it's a good, 
thing for us to think about as far as what does this all mean with the resurrection? What do we actually take home with this? What do we actually do, do with this? I think that the conclusion that Paul has is about as good a thing that we can possibly dwell on. So this is uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 58. Therefore, and again, therefore for everything Paul says, and therefore for all of this as well, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you think to Christ's body, and you think how Christ's body, in his hands and in his side, you could still see the marks of what was done to him. That means that even our sins, even our transgressions, even the things that we do wrong, somehow Christ will transform those for his glory in eternity. And if that is the case, how much more is it that the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do, the good works that are the work of the Lord, how much more will that last into eternity? Let's pray and we'll do some Q&A stuff.